Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 107. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and we have some roaring sword-swinging action for you this week, beginning with Old Blood by Jeremy Saal. Born in 1995 with a twisted sense of humour and a taste for craft beer, Jeremy Saal's fiction and non-fiction has appeared, or is forthcoming, in such venues as Nature, Abyss and Apex, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, and others. He is the fiction editor for a rubbish little-known podcast you probably haven't heard of called Starship Sofa, a Writers of the Future finalist, and also has a useless BA in film studies and creative writing. He's written multiple novels and is on the hunt for literary representation. He carves out a living in Sydney, Australia. His tale is read by Anthony Babington, a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but is in the process of relocating to Minnesota. He can be found on Google+. And now, Old Blood by Jeremy Saal. They said you couldn't kill Old Blood. Direct descendants from the first men, blessed with wisdom and the ability to peer into the future. It seemed that a blade between the ribs did just the trick. I doubted Lord Commander Roar and had predicted that move. I stood in the commander's place, leading the Amelis army. My army. There were thousands of men bathed in the morning's pale glow, standing silently in the frosty fields as snow gathered on their helmets. They held shields of Dwenish metal brandished their swords and flat bows, the arrow tips swathed in poison. They twisted spears that glinted in the sun, maces and war hammers from the far south of Ipsa, where death was an art and red was the artist's color. Razor-sharp rock ridges carved a giant scar in the valley, twisting up to the mountains. Beyond its slope was the enemy, camped for the night. No doubt they were still sleeping easy. They expected us to meet with them in a few hours under a white flag of truce and parley with them. Negotiate. Beg. A coward's game. 
I'd spent days trying to convince Lord Commander Roran otherwise. I pleaded with him, begged him to attack when he had the upper hand. Reminded him about our starving families at home, our children who wanted to see their fathers again, our wives who waited alone at night. But no, he wanted to do it the gentleman's way, the honorable way, as if there was such a thing. Surprisingly, not one of the captains batted an eyelid as I killed the commander. I like to imagine they'd been thinking of doing the deed themselves, but not had the balls. Roran had to go, and they turned to me. I donned his full set of armor, but refused to wash the bloodstain out of the leather and furs. It served as a reminder, a reminder of the price you paid for war. The price we'd all pay if this didn't go well. Here I was, juggling all these thousands of lives, teetering on the edge of a cliff. I felt the weight of their crushing gaze as I stood perched above them, waiting to give the order. A salty smell of Roran's blood charged into my nostrils. A sliver of sweat curled down my back, the wind trying to tug away the sword strapped to my waist. The faint sun was starting to climb over the rim of the mountain, watery light lapping on snow. An honorable man might have waited, bided his time, but that man wasn't here. He'd been buried the night before. I raised my arm, the thick furs tickling at my pits, about to give the order. Thousands of souls waited at the ready, tensed like taut strings of a great bow, holding their collective breath. I froze. I could see motion at the valley's peak, metal gleaming in the light. It looked like... a... person... Then came more, and more all brimming over the edge, a tiny trickle that became a gushing river of men. They halted, finally noticing us. I unfolded my monocular, pressing it to my eye to get a peek. They were in disarray, confusion plastered on the faces of the captains I had met with two days before, the day we agreed to a truce and a parley. Ah... I grinned, shaking my head in dour amusement. It seemed I wasn't the only one unstrained by the pesky laws of so-called honor around here. They'd thought to give themselves a little head start and slaughter half the army before they'd even tumbled out of bed. Except I'd gotten there first. The captain seemed to come to a head, shouting as they pointed desperately at our army with their longswords. The men looked at each other with uncertainty then started the charge, plumes of frost trailing in their wake. I slotted the monocular back together. So this was going to be an equal fight. At least now it would be interesting. You see, Roran? This is the way it's done if you want to live. I turned back to the men. The men I'd fight with. Bleed with. What are you waiting for? I yelled above the gale, above the screams of thousands of soon-to-be-dead men. Let's kill these bastards! And the moral of the story, dear listener, is always plan ahead. Way ahead. Our feature story for the week is A Fair Man by Peter Orulian. Peter has worked at Xbox for more than a decade, which is good because he's a gamer. He's toured internationally with various bands and been a featured vocalist at major rock and metal festivals, which is good because he's a musician. He's also learned when to hold his tongue, which is good because he's a contrarian. 
Peter has published several short stories which he thinks are good. The Unremembered and Trial of Intentions are his first novels, which he hopes you will think are good. He lives in Seattle, where it rains all the damn time. He has nothing to say about that. His story is read by Mark the Encaffeinated One Kilfoyle, who loves fiction so much so that he's written some, read quite a lot of it, and now narrates it. He's found that volunteering for a dozen years in radio was a decent way to get a full-time job as a program director at a community radio station in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, but not such a great way to finish his thesis. So he stopped at a master's in computer science. He can be heard frequently on chsrfm.ca, and two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts and can be found via the links in our show notes. He likes cats enough to pet them, but not enough to own one, and computers enough to own several, but pet none of them. And after that, here we have "A Fair Man" by Peter Orulian. A Fair Man, a story from the vault of heaven, by Peter Orulian. Pit Row reeked of sweat. And fear, heavy sun fell across the necks of those who waited their turn in the pit. Some sat in silence, weapons like afterthoughts in their laps. Others trembled and chattered to anyone who'd spare a moment to listen. Fallow dust lazed around them all. The smell of old earth newly turned. Graves being dug constantly for those who died fighting in the pit. Michael walked the row, one hand on his blade, the other holding the day's list. He passed a big man sitting on a spray of straw. The fellow wore several brands across his chest. A prisoner, more than forty fights, each win burned into his flesh with a simple hash. He'd die in chains, or die in the pit. Blood caked his left foot below an iron manacle that had torn up the flesh of his ankle. Dust clung to his sweaty skin. The prisoner didn't look up at Michael any more than he blinked away the fly drinking in the corner of his eye. But there was something foreign about the man, and something menacing. Indifference. Further down, a young man practiced thrust and parry combinations. His boots lifting more dust into the hot haze, the fellow narrated each movement, the tone of his voice like a man trying to convince himself he'd survive the pit. Michael hated this type, not because they sought glory. No one was that stupid. It was desperation. The pup had a bit of training, and had almost certainly wagered on his own victory, hoping to turn a few thin plugs. The young man's sad, nicked sword. Told the story of his need. Across from the pup came a hissing laugh. Michael turned to see an old pit survivor, Jackman, an incomplete fellow, one arm, wood stump beneath his left knee, a face that whitened around scars when he smiled. The bastard kept a list of his own, odds for betters. He limped up beside Michael to watch the pup dance. He said nothing for a long moment, then took a deep breath through his nose. Smell it, just you. Michael turned to finish his round. Jackman caught him with his one good hand, 
Pop's already dead. He just doesn't have the sense to lay down in the grave yet. <laughs> the hissing laugh followed. <laughs> ten seconds for ten coins. Michael gave the pup another look. The young man would never best a pit fighter. He'd die wearing the surprised look of a man who thought too much of his own skill. Michael stared into the milky eyes of the oddsmaker, anger burning at the truth of it. Maybe, he finally said. He pushed two thin plugs into Jackman's dirty palm, taking the odds, and crossed to the pup. Your sword arm is slow. Don't use it to attack, only defend. Then jab with your knife hand. You're faster there. Be patient. Winning is more important than looking heroic. The boy stared, confused, but nodded. Michael clapped his shoulder and returned to the row. And the list. Jackman called after him. Don't go frustrating my odds, you horsen. Leave the row alone. Toward the end of pit row, he found a man with thin shoulders seated on a tree stump. List said he was a debtor. In front of the man knelt a woman beside two children. The young ones stood quietly, around them all the feeling of goodbye. The man had calloused hands but no weapon. The List shared no further details. Michael approached. I don't see a blade. Do you have one? Was told they'd give me something, the man said, his eyes still fixed on the ground. What are you good with? Michael asked. He finally looked up. I'm a cobbler. A debtor, Michael added. Money was for a roll of boot leather and some mink oil, and they took me in the morning on my day of payment. The cobbler didn't need to say more. It was a common practice. Take a borrower before he can pay all, especially one with an interesting story for the pit. Makes better theater. Spectators root louder, bet emotionally. And what better story than a simple bootmaker fighting against impossible odds for his wife and children? Would love prove stronger than an opponent long acquainted with this theater court? And when the cobbler died, his death would stir a moment's regret in its witnesses. And all would feel blessed not to be in the pit. All would feel a moment's humanity. Keeps the pit fights from becoming routine. Keeps its patrons from disinterest. And it wasn't fair. None of it. You ever handle a weapon? Ever fight? Michael asked, surveying the man's family. I make shoes, he replied. These children would be fatherless by dusk, for the price of a hide and some boot seal. Deafened gods. Michael stood silent and shared a knowing look with the man. The cobbler knew it, too. Only the little ones might be unaware. The fellow was not a gambler, not a whoremonger, not a spender beyond his means. He was a cobbler who had bought material enough to earn a week's keep and fallen behind, sent to pit row for sport, for good measure, for the law, for the entertainment of those who walked on marble floors and drank water chilled. Deafened gods. Michael stared at the cobbler's little girl and thought of his own daughter, soon to reach her cycle, soon to visit one of those homes with marble floors and chilled water. Michael let that alone for now. He took out his riding lead and scratched out the man's name. "'What are you doing?' the cobbler asked. 
It'll go worse for me if I don't... Michael raised a hand to silence him. Go home. The cobbler stood, looking Michael in the eyes for a long time. Then he proffered his hand in thanks. The surprise of it almost caused Michael to smile. Almost. The man had to grip every bit as tight as Michael's own. Then he gathered his family and left Pit Row. Michael looked back at the list and wrote his own name into the blank. Sword and shield held loosely at his sides, Michael stepped into the pit. Blood, old and new, stained the dry ground. Around the perimeter, the bodies of the fallen lay strewn, reminders of the stakes. The pup was among them. Behind Michael, the door shut and the cross brace slammed into place. A moment later, a boulder of a man ducked to the opposite door. When Michael's opponent stood up straight, silent gods, the cobbler had drawn the pit fighter with the branded chest. He remembered thinking the man looked foreign. The branded giant stood an arm's length taller than Michael, his limbs twice as thick, and his broad face resided that indifference. He's in Veteray, Michael realized. In Veteray were a race from beyond the Paul Mountains. Some said they felt no pain, no emotion. The perfect pit fighter. Michael now noticed brands over much of the rest of the man's skin. This inveterate was either a decorated soldier or a traded commodity with a long history of owners, or both. They were called to the center of the pit to face the prince and his coterie. Michael realized he might be recognized by one of the platform captains, so he scooped up some of the blood-drenched earth and smeared his face and beard with it, making it appear an elaborate ritual. When he and his opponent came foot to foot, a chill shivered through him. Not fear of the match, or even of dying, exactly. He'd felt the closeness of mortality before. This was different. This was the feeling of standing next to a creature who didn't fight with fear, or aggression, or anger, or even to win, necessarily. This was the feeling of a fighter who simply put down whatever stood up in front of him, without care, without concern for himself. A perfect killer. Michael would never best him, any more than the cobbler would have. Together they turned to face the prince. Aron was the prince's given name. He dubbed himself Aronal, the all appended by most of the new aristocracy to suggest they served all the people. It was a feeble and transparent attempt at democracy, further betrayed by the prince's attire. Aronal took great pleasure in how he dressed, loved clothes that proved difficult to acquire, especially boots, which he had polished several times a day. Aronal held a long pause, drawing attention to himself. A hint of a smile turned his lips up at the corners, a self-congratulation that smile was, smug as every last hell. Michael hated the sight of it, especially because the prince had a way of turning it beneficent when he needed to. Aronal began to announce the match. It is civilized for us to resolve our disputes. Michael heard very little, instead seeing the young girl beside the prince. Today's offering. What was she, twelve, maybe thirteen? 
a fledgling woman come to her cycle, and so taken by the prince's company for his entertainment, until he tired of her, the monarch's privilege. The girl stared out with deadened eyes, looking small. From the land of the born, never defeated, Michael's own daughter would reach her cycle soon. Would she sit here like this young one? Would she watch death with dead eyes? Would she have to learn such things so early and hard and lose something of herself? Against a simple cobbler, a good man who fell behind, whose family... That's when Michael noticed two young boys behind the prince, each with the same dead look in their eyes. Around them sat men and women in stainless clothes, woven of soaring silk, sharing quiet conversations and amusements. They were a new caste, the new ruling class, whose rule was lawlessness for themselves. And yet they kept the peace. They took their privileges, but the roads were safe, and I'm a part of it. I carry their lists. Because the law mattered. Keeping people safe mattered. And so sacrifices must be made. It was a fair trade. But early arrest wasn't fair. A cobbler against an inveterate wasn't fair. Michael had taken the bootmaker's place, thinking his own skill against a pit fighter would be a fairer match Maybe even that he'd have the advantage. He was a skilled wrestler, after all, and this pit where he'd competed had once been a place of high sport, and he usually won. Nowadays, though, he mostly taught his little ones how to defend themselves, and today he'd be fighting an inveterate. Even his skill didn't make it a fair match. He would leave his wife a widow and his children fatherless. He'd seen these pit fights a thousand times. The prince or another of the new aristocracy would tell the story of the fighters in dramatic detail, while bloodthirsty revelers listened in rapt attention. A few tattered pennants would flap in the breeze like tired accompaniment, and at the end instructions for the match would be laid out. A few simple rules. When to start fighting. An invocation to honor. Michael listened closely now, waiting. Prince Arenal raised his palms toward them like a grateful benefactor. The match will start when I say begin. Without moving his feet, Michael swept his sword up and thrust it into the inveterate's throat. Blood sprayed from the gaping wound, splashing across his hand and arm. The inveterate dropped to his knees as the crowd gasped. Growled complaints rose on the hot afternoon sun. Michael drove the blade deeper into the other's flesh, pushing the inveterate onto his back. Blood covered the giant's neck, but it made no attempt to fight back or remove the blade or staunch the flow. When Michael came near, that chill shivered through him again. The inveterate's indifferent eyes hadn't changed. They looked at him as if waiting to die, though he thought he saw something else. A small flicker of acknowledgement. Gratitude, maybe. Then the blood stopped flowing. The inveterate's eyes stopped seeing. You're a coward, called the prince. 
You've disrespected our rules. No, Michael said, turning. You said the match would start when you said begin. Aronal considered for a long moment. A small smile crept upon his lips. Clever, he raised his arms to the pit theater. Our match champion, he announced. And the day's fastest win by more than a full minute. A roar ascended all around them as Michael walked from the pit to find Jackman. The pup had beaten the odds. Michael had twenty plugs to collect. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Night came on full as Michael patrolled the tides. Sever Ends wasn't a port town. It had no harbor, but it had a traveler's district. Cheap rooms, cheap food and a plug bought you a seat at any table of odds. Whores were easy to come by, too. Male whores made double the rest, as they tended to have a broader tolerance for risk. The tides was where drifters rolled through sever ends, where people washed up on its shores and away again, as if drawn by one of the dominant moons. Michael walked the south side of the market street, keeping a close eye on idlers, Experience had taught him idlers in the tides were either flim-flam men or marks. Trouble either way. On each side of the street, every thirty paces stood a thick post topped with a lamp, an attempt to discourage pickpockets and the like. The lamps created pools of darkness that needed to be managed closely. At the edge of light thrown by one of these street lanterns, an old man strolled. Men do, sometimes, when their luck has been good at the tables. Stupid thing. Beating one set of odds makes them confident enough to walk as if they haven't any place to be. Michael wondered, though, if it wasn't as simple as feeling a little contentment. The fear of debt once removed, if only for an hour's time, allows a man to imagine happiness. 
and happiness is rarely hurried. Into the old man's path stepped a street scamp, gunny sack jacket, smears of coal on his cheeks, part costume for a mark, part disguise against a man like Michael. The waif, maybe twelve years old, petitioned the old man. Michael couldn't hear the words, but he recognized the tone easy enough. A palm went up, suspicion in the old man's shoulders fell to compassion, and his hand went into his pocket. The lad pointed to the mouth of the alley. Michael started to run after them. The old man followed the scamp into the shadows. By the time Michael rounded the corner and turned up the alleyway, the old man was surrounded by seven waifs, three boys, four girls, each held a knife. "'Enough!' Michael called, rushing to the old man's assistance. Behind him, as he knew would happen, three more scamps closed in to block his retreat. Didn't matter. Alley kids folded when you crushed the will of their leader. Michael needed to quickly identify which one led this gang, then either talk him out of his prize or pound him senseless. "'They've robbed me,' the old man said, pointing to a boy who wore a satchel over his shoulder. "'Too easy,' Michael thought. The leader wouldn't be wearing an obvious telltale. "'Doesn't concern you, Coat,' said one of the girls. "'You can go back the way you came. No harm. But if you start to play hero, you're getting cut.' Men who carried the city's lists, like Michael, or walked patrol, or kept the peace, were called coats. Not because their coats matched as a uniform might, but because they had a coat in the first place. Authority to act in the name of the ruling seat was a piece of paper folded into a waxed pouch against his chest. "'No one's getting cut,' Michael said, nearing the circle. "'And no one's getting robbed. Return the coin and I won't drop you into a work camp.' These kids wouldn't have parents, not in the sense that it would be a threat to invoke their names, and jail was out. Scamps were too young for that. But the work camps, worse than jail they were, and Michael didn't make idle threats. "'You've not walked a turn in the tides for a while, have you, Coat?' One of the girls turned to face him. Hers was a different kind of confidence. It wasn't the same as the Inveterates, but it lived in that direction." "'scary as every last hell to see that look on one so young. "'Tides are always the same,' Michael replied. "'Just like you.' "'He swept an arm at the lot of them. "'Before she could reply, the old man leapt at the boy with the satchel "'and clubbed him in the side of the face "'with a hand-held cudgel he'd had hidden beneath his belt. "'The boy went down hard, his head cracking on the cobblestones. "'Immediately, another boy leapt onto the old man's back.' taking him in a chokehold. Another swept the man's legs, dropping him to the alley floor. A second girl pounced, slicing two of the old man's fingers clean off. He screamed and grabbed at his hand, squeezing back the blood. The girl in front of Michael never moved, never took her eyes from him. And Michael had had enough of this god's damned business. He started towards her, his sword ready. Two steps and she flashed her hands. A half moment later something entered his cheek with a searing pain. Michael stopped and pulled a long, sturdy pin from his face, a third of it coated with blood. Delicate fletching made it something slightly more than a sewing needle. "'I would have put that in your eye, but I don't want you coming back.' The girl raised a second pin between them, staring at him over its tip. "'Take it as a warning, and get the hell out of my alley.' 
The old man on the ground moaned, still held tightly to a chokehold. That's when Michael saw it, the pendant hanging on the old man's chest, the prince's seal. This was a member of Aronal's coterie, an official man. That's also when Michael realized the old man hadn't come into the alley for charity's sake. There had been an unseemly proposition. It hadn't been compassion that relaxed the old man's shoulders. It had been the ease of filling an appetite, the carnal kind. For this old man, it seemed privilege wasn't enough. But Michael wouldn't leave him here. Didn't matter the circumstance or danger. Ten against one, not fair, even if they were kids. Though perhaps it would be two against ten, assuming the old man could be expected to defend himself if Michael pushed this. He stared at the girl in her pin for an uncomfortably long time. He meant to make them uncertain about what he'd do. Mostly he was thinking about her age. How old are you? He asked, his voice softer now. I don't work on my back, the girl said. Twelve, he asked. Fourteen at the outside? She frowned and spat at his feet. You want part of the take, that it? Because you know you could put a couple of us down before we cut you through, and you think we won't make the trade-off. He shook his head. You took to the streets, rather than... Men and women who wear silk don't have privileges in the tides. She twirled the pin deftly between her fingers. But that was a bluster. The law had every name on a list, every name save drifters. And Michael was paid to keep drifters moving in and out. These scamps and gillers were refugees who had escaped the privileges. For now, and to survive in the tides, they ran together and fleeced whomever they could. It made sense to Michael now, where it hadn't before. The packs of children, the crime, the killings. He studied the pin he'd pulled from his cheek. He guessed this scamp's mother had given her a leather sewing kit as a means to provide for herself when she left her to the tides to escape the touch of privilege. My silent gods, he thought. Anna, his daughter, would be this age in a few years' time. Easy, he said, and reached into his coat for a bag full of coins, his stake from Jackman on the pup's odds. Let him go, and I'll make him square with my own money. You keep your take and go the hell home. The girl's eyebrows arched in surprise. Then her eyes narrowed. What trick? Michael ignored the question. I'll see him to a physicer for his fingers. And if we meet again, I'll go hard on you for this. He waved the pin and tossed it aside. Maybe we'll take your coins, too, she said, her fingers tensing on the pin in her hand. You're welcome to try, replied Michael, hefting his bag to jingle the coins. But I won these frustrating the prince's oddsmaker at the pit. So these are winnings that stole wine from privileged bellies. The girl laughed and lowered her pin. Then she took several steps toward Michael, coming up close to see him clearly through the shadows. We're not looking to be saved. We don't need your sympathy. Softly, so that the others wouldn't hear, he said, That's horseshit. She smiled. I've made a fair offer. Are we made? The girl motioned with her hand, and the scamps disappeared into the alley. 
She backed slowly away, looking frailer in the darkness with each retreating step. The tides would get her eventually. That much was sure. But not today. And she'd go with brighter eyes when the odds caught up with her. But they'd be odds she chose herself. Weeks of walking the tides exhausted him. In every possible way. Coming home to his family was Michael's only relief. Small concerns and wrestling with his little ones. Chores and simple repairs. Laughter. Then, one day, entering his home, he felt a graveside stillness. The air was heavy, the silence loud. On an old chair in the corner, his wife Mabel sat rocking their youngest child. Beside her sat the cobbler he'd saved from the pit, holding a pair of shoes. "'What is this?' he stepped in, surveying the rest of the room. "'No one else. "'Where is Anna?' His wife looked up at him, unable to speak her face pale and tear-stained. The cobbler broke the silence. "'I came to give her these,' he said, glancing at the shoes in his hands. "'For what you did for me and my family, this is how I found her.' Michael knelt beside her. "'Mabel, where is Anna?' he asked again. Tears rolled down her cheeks, but she could only shake her head. "'Privilege!' but so early. It didn't matter that he'd known this day would come. It didn't matter that he'd sometimes thought that the trade-off for safety was worth the price of privilege. It didn't matter that it was the law. The thought of his little girl taken into the hands of the prince and his cronies to be used for their pleasure and amusement tore at him. His heart hammered with anger and fear and helplessness. His mind raced with images no parent should have to imagine. Before he knew what he was doing, he stood and started for the ruling manners, for the prince. The cobbler said something behind him, but he didn't register the words. At the sentry gate, he showed his paper of authorization. The prince's seal and signature got him past the guards. At the manor doors, he did the same, claiming that Prince Arenal had requested a personal report on the state of the tides. He dropped a hint of special taxes— Money lay at the top of the prince's concerns. The doorman took Michael's sword and knife, a precaution at all ruling manners. Then a man in a red velvet uniform ushered him personally up two sets of stairs to a set of double doors guarded by four men. He showed his authorization paper again. One of the guards knocked softly on the private chamber door. Some moments later came the reply, "'Can't it wait?' "'It's the tide, sir. Something about new taxes,' said the usher. Another delay, and then, "'Very well. Come.' The usher bowed and opened the door. If Prince Arenal's attire was extravagant, his bedchamber was grotesque in its lavishness. It smacked of the careless spending a man does when he's had a bounteous night of gambling in the tides. Art covered the walls, the styles foreign, and so expensive to import. Rugs of intricate design stretched to every corner of the room, and there stood no less than six refreshment tables, laden with wines, cheeses, fruits, pastries, and thin meats. And the jewel of it all was the bed, an oversized piece of furniture clearly commissioned, with Arenal's likeness graven into the wood a dramatic relief. 
The bed had four immense posts and sheer drapes pulled back, as if the man wanted to be seen sleeping. Michael had only taken two strides into the room when he nearly fell. Lying on the prince's bed was Anna, her eyes red, her lips trembling, one hand tied to the bedpost by a length of rope. Michael found strength enough to signal that she shouldn't acknowledge him. "'Sire, I've news, but I doubt you'll want your man here when I share it.' Aronal was pouring a glass of dark liquor. Smelled like plum brandy, but tapped too soon, as if by impatient hands. He turned, nodded to the usher, who bowed and withdrew, closing the door. "'And you are?' said the prince. "'Michael Richards, sire. I enforce your laws.' "'I'm not aware of new taxes in the tides,' Aronal replied, unimpressed. "'So I'll assume you have an enterprise to propose. "'Something that profits us both? "'Thus your request for privacy, yes?' "'Michael forced himself not to look at his daughter. "'He couldn't think straight when seeing the fear in her eyes, "'and he needed a clear head for this. "'Sire, your privilege has brought my daughter to your bed. Michael motioned to Anna. Aronal's eyes scanned Michael, ensuring he'd been relieved of his weapons. Then he took one long draught of his brandy, smiling behind his glass. So, you've come to ask for an exception. I serve your law, Michael answered. I carry your lists. I walk the tides. I keep my opinions to myself because I like that our roads are safe. You have opinions? Aronal laughed softly, mockingly. Well, I'd like to hear them. Michael closed his eyes and shook his head. That's not what I meant, sire. I'm sorry. I just understand that a man has to give to receive. There are trades we make. Like privilege? Aronal followed, goading him. I used to think so. Michael replied. I used to think that it's not really a trade if the thing you give up means nothing, costs nothing, but now... Yes. Aronal spared a look at Anna, whose powdered face was streaked with tears. Her eyes asked for help. The price is too high, and she's not yours to take. Do you think perhaps that's for me to decide? said the prince, lowering a hand to the blade at his belt. No, Michael said earnestly. He struggled with the words. I'm not a lawmaker, but I know what's fair. I've kept your pits moving, made sure the fights were satisfying. I've patrolled the drift that rolls with sever ends, ensured they left as much coin as they took, and kept your taxpayers alive. He looked the prince straight. It's fair for me to ask this favor. Aronal offered a conciliatory laugh. My good man, I appreciate your service. The city is in your debt. But I think the personal nature of today's privilege has clouded your thinking. That's understandable. But I assure you, I will be... Delicate. 
As will I, came a voice. Its owner stepped from behind a large bureau on the other side of the bed. The old man. His one hand still bandaged, he held a crystal goblet in the other, his cheeks ruddy with drink. When a prince's man is attacked by street scum, the little bastard should be gutted, not paid off. This was why Anna had been brought here nearly two years before her time. Punishment. Michael's punishment for not better defending the prince's man. Petty goddamn bastard. Michael could have left the man there to die. He'd bought his life with pit winnings. Took a pin in the face and nearly lost an eye for this whoreson bugger. The old man smiled thinly. Michael turned back to Aronal, ready to explain, but saw only a look of supreme smugness. They'd planned this together. More amusement at the expensive lives they were sworn to hold safe. Anger burned hot inside Michael, who finally looked again at Anna. Her eyes had begun to show a hint of resignation. It was the worst thing he'd seen in all his life and by every last silent god he would die trying to keep it out of her face. "'I'm afraid I'm growing impatient with you,' said the prince. "'I applaud your commitment to your family, but it's time for you to go.' Michael could rush the prince, but the man was no laggard with a blade, and Michael was unarmed. He'd test those odds if he had to, though he hated the thought of Anna watching the prince kill him if he failed. He scanned the room for a makeshift weapon. Another knock sounded at the chamber door. "'Oh, my dead gods, what now? Come!' Aronal yelled. The usher bowed apologetically as he led the cobbler into the room. "'You said to admit this man as soon as he arrived,' the usher explained. Aronal's eyes widened with delight. So I did. Come in, my good fellow. He gestured for the cobbler to approach and dismissed the usher. The cobbler shot Michael a look, then glanced at the boot box he carried. He did it twice. Something's inside. The cobbler came up beside him and put the box down on the floor between them, removing thick wood stumps from the boots that helped them keep their shape. Aronal hastily finished his liquor and wiped his neatly trimmed beard inelegantly with his sleeve. This man, Michael, this man, do you know what he did? Michael waited. The prince lit with glee. Oh, my, it was wonderful. He was in the pit, against an inveterate, mind you, and perfectly held to the rules while killing the creature before he'd even finished announcing the match. Aronal didn't recognize either of them. In fairness, the prince's platform was a fair distance from the pit floor, and Michael had muddied his face though he guessed Aronal had also been rather drunk. On the bed, Anna was using the distraction to try and free her bound hand, but the binding was too tight, and she was trembling besides. "'Sounds like a clever man,' Michael nodded to the cobbler. "'You've a gift for understatement,' said the prince. "'This fellow saved his own life by using my rules against me. It was brilliant!' So you know what I did? No, sire. Aronal leaped forward and whispered like a conspirator. I commissioned a pair of boots from the very hide of the inveterate he killed. Then he boomed. Isn't that marvelous? 
Michael glanced down at the boots near his feet, and that's when he saw them, a knife hidden in the bottom of each boot. I simply had to have a reminder, Aronal went on. Best pit fight of the year, and the commission on the boots pays our men here in full, plus some. He's no debtor any more. Do you see how privilege works? Michael looked up at the prince. A pair of knives wasn't a guarantee. The monarch had a sword and a dagger, and he was powerfully good with them. But it was a chance. I beg you, sire, Michael gave Anna one last look. Let my daughter go, for all I've done, all I will continue to do. Grant me this one request. Arunal's countenance changed, darkened. His delight was replaced by furrowed brows and an angry twist on his lips. You are relieved of your duties, he said. And good luck finding work, even in the tides, where you're known as a man of the law. Oh, he added, with a suggestive drawl, and your daughter will remain here a full year, perhaps longer. Privilege was usually a few days. Anna began to cry. Michael bent to the boots and took hold of the knives. The cobbler grabbed the box and retreated to the wall. Arunal stared a long moment at them both, then shook his head and laughed. This cobbler is full of surprises. One last time, Michael said, let her go. And what do you think happens, my friend, if you manage to kill me? He pointed at the door behind Michael. You'll never escape the manor alive. There are thirty men between you and the gate, all armed and armored. Michael twirled the knives round in a pitfighter's grip. I'm betting once the head is gone, the body won't follow. Quite the risk, said the prince, still standing near one of the refreshment tables. I'm also betting some of those men are fathers, Michael added. Arunal drew his sword. Clever, he said. The old man bolted for a second door beyond the bureau. The cobbler dashed and cut him off, smashing the box against the side of the old man's head and knocking him to the floor, unconscious. And to keep the odds fair, the cobbler turned and locked the main door, then moved to the bureau and pushed it in front of the other door, just in case His Majesty had thoughts of calling in help. The prince's eyes flattened, became calculating. Your daughter will watch me kill you. Maybe, Michael conceded. Arunal lunged, the tip of his blade slicing at Michael's forearm. He managed to deflect the blow with one of his knives and dropped into a ready stance. He's fast. Michael closed in, hoping to end the fight quickly. He stabbed with his right-hand dagger, but the prince warded off the blow with his own jewel-hinted long knife. Michael spun past Arunal crouching as the man's blade swept through the air above his head. He leapt up and kicked Arunal in the chest, driving him back. Michael needed space to reset himself. The prince regained his balance and stood ready. Michael stalked a slow circle, looking for an entry point, a momentary lapse of concentration. Arunal gave him none, even as he smiled. Actually, 
said the prince. This is a nice surprise. It's not often enough that someone is fighting back when I slice them open. Michael rushed, then dropped low, changing levels. He meant to get a knife in the prince's belly, but the man stepped gingerly aside and brought his own knife hard across Michael's arm, opening a deep cut. Blood flowed fast and hot, and he felt his left hand grip weaken. He rolled through near the foot of the bed and whirled as the prince swept in on him. Michael jabbed up with his good hand and caught the prince deep in the thigh. Aronal moaned and staggered back. Your family will pay for that, he said. With one bad hand, two knives were doing Michael no good now. While the prince stood unready, Michael hurled one of the knives. He missed, but it gave him time to stand and get into a pit stance. Aronal braced himself, then came forward, eyes bright, teeth clenched. He fainted with his dagger, drawing Michael into a block, then brought his sword up quickly, stabbing Michael in the side. Pain shot across Michael's back and belly. He pulled back, blood coating his shirt and coat. It wasn't a mortal blow, but he'd bleed out if he didn't get it bandaged. Anna was crying. Michael could hear it now. What must it be like to watch a loved one being killed? Because he was losing... He'd had one good hand, a knife, and each movement sent shivering pain through his torso. The prince must have seen it. Before I kill you, I will make you watch, he nodded toward Anna, cowering against the massive carved headboard. There's a line, an edge of sanity a man knows about himself. It's a place he crosses when those he loves are threatened. In danger. Laws don't mean a good God's damn on the other side of that line. And Michael felt himself rip across it, damning the costs. He rushed Arenal again, this time screaming to create panic. He pretended to come down with an exaggerated overhand sweep, stabbing down, but again he dropped, falling under the prince's slashing blade and stabbing up. Arenal shuffled his feet, sidestepping the blow. His wounded thigh gave out, and he tumbled back, falling on the bed, falling onto Anna. The rest looked like a choreographed dance, like something rehearsed. Anna raised her legs and wrapped them around each of his arms and behind his back. A wrestler's move. Then she pulled her bound hand down quickly and circled the prince's neck with the rope. Before the prince understood what was happening, she wrenched the binding tight. Aronal writhed, trying to free himself. Anna tightened her legs, causing one of the prince's shoulders to pop, but she didn't relent, pulling harder on the rope with both hands. The prince gasped for air, his mouth working like a fish's. Aronal's sword fell from his hand, clattering to the floor. Michael finally broke the shock of what he was seeing and started forward. The prince's eyes found his own, pleading. Michael watched as Aronal's face whitened and slowly relaxed, and he stopped moving altogether. Michael didn't know how long it had taken. Anna was sweaty and panting. She started to cry harder now. Sobs racked her body as her legs relaxed and Aronal slipped to the floor. Michael eased forward and took her in his arms. He felt her shake her head as if denying it all. She'd escaped the prince's privilege. In the end, she'd done it herself but it had earned her a different kind of knowledge, something a child shouldn't have to learn, and Michael couldn't take that away, could never change it. 
even if the ruling seats changed the way of things, and he would see to it that they did, it wouldn't change things for Anna. You can remove a nail from a piece of wood, but the hole remains. Some damage would always be visible, and Michael couldn't take that away either. The unfairness of it gnawed at him. He wanted to put it right. But his only power was to hold his little girl for as long as she needed him to. He hoped that would be enough. Sword and sorcery, or in this case, sword and no sorcery, typically follows anti-heroes carving a swathe of mayhem across a decadent cutthroat terrain. Here, Peter reminds us that a principled man in an unprincipled world can be just as compelling. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. If you like what you hear from week to week, please consider visiting our Patreon page and making a donation. Server space can get expensive, and every little bit helps. Plus, with enough support, we can start paying authors for exclusive content. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And you have to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be sent to the gladiator pits. I'm off to go and ride my bicycle in the beautiful spring sunshine. I hope it's shining where you are too. I'll see you next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.